0: You're listening to On Human Rights where we bring you interviews from experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends and information on human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Christina of Ekstrom and we are broadcasting from the Ralf Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today we are speaking to Sue-Anne Théo, researcher in, within AI, to talk about artificial intelligence in relation to human rights. Thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Today we have sue Anteo in the studio and we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and
1: human rights. So nice to have you here. Thanks, it's great to be here. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself first? Sure, Uh, I'm a final year uh, PhD student at the University of Copenhagen, Faculty of Law, working in the area of AI, artificial intelligence and human rights. When we talk about AI, what is it that we're really talking about? What do we mean? We're talking about different things and all sorts of things. <laughs> it's, uh, AI is a, a, a suitcase word, almost, where different conceptions are, are, are put into it. So if we were to take the word intelligence, for example, then we are looking at, for example, an intelligent agent, an intelligent machine, that can take uh, certain intelligent actions, right? But that's not very helpful, is it? Because the nature of intelligence, we're not quite sure how to measure that as well. Humans are intelligent in certain ways, whereas machines are intelligent in in different ways. So if we use humans as a benchmark, that's not very helpful. But then Russell and Norvig comes up with a definition that also involves uh, seeing how the machine receives different inputs from the environment and then Takes action uh, to affect the environment, so the best action that can, that is taken within those circumstances. But like I said, it's a it's a suitcase word, and the same is being uh, the same approach is being taken in the EU Artificial Intelligence Act, where it encompasses different things. But I think uh, when we move on to you know different types of AI, then I can explain a bit more what we actually mean when we talk about AI these days.
0: Yeah, so artificial, it's complex uh, to know what we mean when we talk about it, because it's so many things, and as you say, it's a a suitcase concept. But so we are trying to distinguish a little bit between the different types, Then, what different types do you
1: see? Well, there are different uh, subtypes of AI, artificial intelligence, and the most famous or most prominent these days being machine learning, And there are also different types of machine learning, right, different techniques. So supervised learning, unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning, and so forth. I won't go specifically into details, but basically machine learning means... um, the ability of a computer to learn by itself through the data that it encounters. So it improves its, its performance over time without subsequent human intervention. So the human is there sort of at the very beginning, designing the thing, optimizing it for certain purposes, but then the software or the computational system can dynamically learn by itself after that.
0: AI is something we love to love and love to hate, I suppose. It's it's a part of our life now. It's an interesting tool. But if we are a bit positive in terms of AI, because I guess the discussion is off that we're worrying about what AI means for us and so on. But if we have a look at the benefits of AI, what are those?
1: Yeah, there are actually loads of benefits, but maybe I can go a little bit into the quote-unquote characteristics or features or affordances of AI systems first, if you will. So the, the area that's it, that is most problematized when we talk about artificial intelligence is actually machine learning. And there are several issues there. Right? There's the problem of opacity. So we don't know how a particular outcome comes about because the machine learns by itself from the data it encounters. The human is not really involved at that that stage. But if they're making decisions, then we kind of can't really trace it. Can't really trace it back to its provenance. There's also lack of transparency. We don't really know how the algorithm works. Uh, There's the problem of scale as well. It depends. It can be a problem can be uh, very much a benefit. And and speed, these things uh, were very, very fast and certainly much, much faster. The benefits of AI, many, many folds, right? If uh, we read the press release by DeepMind recently, they had this alpha fold algorithm that is looking into solving a 50-year-old science problem, the problem of 3D modeling of protein structures. It's been plaguing scientists for, you know, half a century. So it can really, really help advance science in areas of drug design and environmental sustainability, understanding diseases a little bit better, coming up with faster treatments, et cetera, et cetera. So huge benefits there. Um, in the field of medicine, there's also lots of benefits. For example, uh, radiology, you know, AI systems are performing really well in reading images, X-ray images, MRI images that are very helpful to doctors in the field. So playing a, sort of a complementary role. And it can, of course, advance other, other human endeavors. But it's helpful to think of artificial intelligence as a general purpose technology so that is used across different sectors public service private uh, areas for example your facebook netflix etc employment healthcare education climate change you name it there's probably not one sector that it will not eventually touch so in our daily lives you touched upon it we encounter ai
0: for example when we're looking for a new film to see this <laughs> evening or uh, something uh, else related to what we consume in terms of pleasures and so on, but also in the daily work life. But so in our daily lives in general, what does it do for us? Where do we meet it, uh, me, a regular person?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting question because AI has the curious quality of being everywhere yet nowhere, in the sense that you can't really see it in the same way you see your phone as a technology or your car as a technology. I actually have a personal sort of anecdote where, you know, I submitted this paper and and I got uh, back from a reviewer who said, I think I used the sentence that AI is ubiquitous, so it's everywhere. And the reviewer's comment was, um, where is AI? I don't see it. I don't experience it. (laughs) So it has this this strange quality, right? So for example, when we use social media platforms, uh, Facebook's algorithms determine what you see in your newsfeed and in what order content is also so content moderation on facebook is also algorithmic most likely done by by ai systems because it's you know simply impossible for humans to look through billions and billions of pieces of content emails for example that learn to classify what is spam and what is not spam based on what you label and what it learns from other data as well chatbots for example when you interact with your authority It's also learning from your responses. And in that sense, you sort of know that you're talking with a chatbot, right? There's a certain level of transparency there. But bots in social media platforms like Twitter and so on, it's not always clear whether the piece of content or the engagement is with a human or a bot behind the content that you see. Then we talked about recommendation systems like, you know, your Netflix and your, your Spotify. AI is also encountered in terms of assisting in decision-making systems, for example, in public administration, public services, who gets social welfare benefits, who gets flagged as a potential Fraudule- fraud, potentially flagged for fraud in social welfare. Uh, it's also used in predictive policing, for example, so analyzing data and providing insights on which areas are high risk and where the police should pay more attention to, and also problematically, which persons are high risk persons that the police should possibly pay more attention to. Mm. So it's, it's kind of everywhere um, due, to, due to its nature as a general purpose technology. But at the same time, we can't really see it, can we?
0: No, I, and I think you told me once when we talked about these things, uh, that it's a little bit like electricity.
1: I think that is a good, uh, of course, there are, it's, it's not totally accurate analogy, but it's a good way of thinking about it, that it's, we don't think about electricity for the factory and electricity for the school as two different things. It's, it's electricity. So the same way we can think about AI systems mm. as well.
0: We can be sure it's more or less everywhere, yes. even if we don't see it. So this is when we come into a little bit of the, the worries and the, some challenges and risks. Uh, what kind of ethical challenges do you see?
1: I think when um, this whole uh, AI hype gained prominence, the first sort of worries that were on people's minds, also sort of highlighted by popular culture, is uh, this worry of, you know, the Terminator style thing and killer robots and, and, and so forth. And, and that's fine because we, we draw upon the cultural references that are familiar with. And then, you know, came the sort of ethical worry of autonomous vehicles and if they were to, you know, if there were errors and so on, if they were to crash into people and kill people, then who's responsible with that and can the legal system handle those things? There's also other ethical concerns like, for example, the displacement of human labor. We spend a lot of time working. If more and more of us are being replaced by machines, then what does it mean for our work but not just our work but our meaning attach a lot of meaning to our our work currently so that's sort of a sort of a high level view if you will i don't specifically think that the risk of killer robots or the terminator style uh, worries uh, need need to occupy our minds uh, at this particular stage we are nowhere near that if at all and in fact it might even distract us or detract us from some of the problems that are already happening. So we don't have to wait for the terminators to come uh, to worry about the displacement of humans, because that's, that's happening in different ways through, for example, how AI systems can be dehumanized, mm-hmm. right, in ways that in fact, human, dignity, human dignity underpins human rights.
0: Yes, yeah, so, so what are the human rights implications of AI systems that you have already seen and that we can see?
1: There are a few key human rights that are that are impacted by by no means the only ones, but typically we talk about so like the right to privacy, the parlance of of, uh, of the European Convention of Human Rights, it would be the right to private right. So that's impacted. And then there's the right not to be discriminated, biased within AI systems, that's also impacted, there's the right to freedom of expression and information. I'll go into this uh, in detail in a bit, but I just want to sort of provide a big picture first. The freedom of thought, uh, which we don't really think about, uh, and of course the right to data protection. So those are kind of the main ones, right? So if we were to, to cycle back, the right to privacy, the right to private life, how does it, how is that impacted? Well, well. AI systems rely heavily on data. Data is the lifeline, is the bloodline of AI systems without data AIs. AI and getting so much data from not just people but the environments around us means that we are being monitored not only through the data that we volunteer but also things that maybe we're not so conscious about, right? In which uh, it can somehow also affect us. For example, AI systems of emotion recognition, um, reading faces to try to gleam certain emotions um, and then take that insight to make it actionable in some way. So reading your tone of voice or your, your eye contact and how you react to certain questions and so on. If this is used in uh, hiring and recruitment, um, <laughs> then there are, there are privacy issues there. But it can also be very so-called innocuous things like typing speeds, um, you know, just this general sense of being monitored in everything that we do. And some scholars call this data valence, right? So instead of surveillance, it's, it's data valence, because it impacts so much upon our right to privacy. The right to privacy is not just about sort of freedom from interference by the state, right? Businesses also have the obligation to respect human rights and when we talk about the right to privacy or the right to private life, it also includes the, the, the way you shape your personality, how you grow as a person, how you manage your social relationships with others. So it's very sort of wide and expansive and the constant monitoring is extremely problematic in that sense. So, one particular example where the right to privacy was uh, judged to be impacted was the case of Siri in the Netherlands. So, the tax authorities there used this algorithm to, to monitor possible fraud by social welfare recipients. And it was deemed by the Dutch courts, the, the court in The Hague, that this extensive monitoring of people failed to strike the balance between privacy. Uh, and the action taken by the state uh, for them to combat fraud, uh, because it was overly monitoring citizens in ways that are not transparent. But then we also have the issue of discrimination and bias, also covered a lot in the the, uh, research. So, for example, we've seen uh, that, you know, AI systems have come, come up with bias results in facial analysis algorithms where, for example, darker skinned people cannot be detected, right, by these systems. That's extremely problematic. Bias results are also seen, for example, through search results. And um, Sophia Noble has written a very interesting book about this where, you know, she... She researched on, you know, when you Google, for example, black women, certain stereotypical images uh, typically comes up. And Kate Crawford has called this as a form of harm of representation, how you are presented is harmful. But then it's hard to articulate this form of harm in non-discrimination law terms as, as we have today. It's not just a sort of harm of representation because, for example, the search results that you get by, by say, googling a black-sounding name, and this was what happened to the Harvard professor Latanya Sweeney. She googled her own name, and her name surfaced uh, beside an ad for criminal background checks. Now, if an employer, potential employer, sees this, it could mean not just harm of representation, which is already bad enough, but potentially losing certain opportunities. In, in life as well because of this form of representation. If I were to give you a troubling example of how discrimination and bias featured in AI system systems, it would be the Torschlagen Affair in the Netherlands, whereby what happened was that the social security unit there, looking into welfare fraud again, singled out those with non-Dutch nationality. So if you had double nationality, or if you were, had another EU nationality, you were singled out for extra scrutiny. You, you, had, you, you were marked out as a risk factor. They were given a higher risk indication on, on this account, uh, and many were suspected of fraud. And when this happened, the payments for this uh, social benefits were stopped automatically. Automatically. Mm. And parents were asked to pay back like, the full sum that they owed At once, so it can be tens of thousands of euros, and tens of thousands of parents were affected, and these costs caused many families to break apart, many bankruptcies, children were taken into foster care, and some committed suicide. Mm. So this this example actually shows how problematic it is when we see the technology in the context of uh, in the social context in a political context, you know, it was driven by efficiency. We want to cut down the amount of time spent on this, uh, looking at these fraud cases. But it also meant taking shortcuts informed upon, informed based upon certain bias and prejudices that already existed in people. And then the social, political and legal mix, right? There was a law that was passed that allowed this, which allowed for such a thing to happen and this caused the dutch government the whole dutch government to resign hmm. in 2021 there's a good uh, study by amnesty international looking at you know how exactly this algorithm worked and how this huge problem was was caused so i can i can recommend listeners to to look into that we will post the links yes so there's also the um Question of freedom of expression and information. So I already talked about a little bit about content moderation uh, by social media platforms, uh, most likely done by algorithms. Mm. Um, but also content curation. What you you see is determined by the algorithms of these social media platforms, informed by informed by what their duty to shareholders to maximize profits. So it's driven by this eyeball economy, right, which means that probably pushing some form of problematic content or divisive content will make you sort of stay a little bit longer mm. in, in the platform. Now that that is a huge ethical issue right now, but it will be a legal issue once the EU law comes into force. At the same time, the question of nudging also arises. So we are perhaps familiar with nudging in behavioral economics, where, you know, you, you go to a cafe and if you want to encourage people to eat healthier, then you place the salad at the eye level. So people will buy the salad without even really thinking mm. rationally about it. That's, that's nudging. And yes, uh, the nudging is, is based on, on the work by uh, Taylor and, and Sunstein. Mm, you can look into to that as well. But how nudging is carried out online, it's a little bit different. Because instead of everyone being in a cafe, a common place that is sort of accessible in the same way to everybody, uh, in online environments is tailored to you. It's personalized to you in ways that no one else can get access to because its personalized. Now, the way content is being displayed to you, pushed to you, and you're nudged in certain ways, is this deception? Is this manipulation? Or is it persuasion? Mm-hmm. Where does one draw the lines? Right. And one area that's not really looked into in the area of human rights is the freedom of thought. uh, Article nine of the European Convention on Human Rights. So it's freedom of thought is part of the freedom of thought, conscience uh, and religion. And this right is absolute. Right. There are no there are no balancing processes processes here. Typically, when we talk about this right, we think about, okay, it revolves around the right to practice the religion. And we also think about it in terms of religion and how the religion is manifested. But less towards thinking about thoughts inside the mind, as it were. Because, well, rightly or wrongly, we assume that what we think inside the mind is always protected. There's no way, or there was no way, that states or private actors could reach into our minds, our forum internal. But it's not so straightforward today. Again, if we think about social media platforms, the news feeds determines not per se our worldview. It doesn't determine anything. It's not deterministic in that way. But it certainly shapes the information that we get, how we know what we know uh, about things. And companies can experiment on us, um, as Facebook has, has done in the past, or able to nudge us in ways that are not transparent that bypasses our conscious reasoning conscious rational reasoning and and elicits sort of psychological responses and reactions so then the questions of freedom of thought also arises but there's very very little literature on this again because you know that it, it wasn't possible really to to quote unquote threaten this this right in the past but that's not the not the case anymore. Potentially an interesting research area then. Potentially, yes.
0: Mm. Yes, intriguing indeed. So all this said, um, it seems we need some ethics, don't we?
1: Yes, for sure. I think we we need human rights and we need ethics. Um, And many parties sort of conflate them, but they can be two separate complementary things. So human rights, uh, it's, you know, this established normative legal order that's worldwide, it's universal, and institutions are in place to to guarantee human rights. But at the same time, human rights uh, tend to be individualistic, about your right relies very much on the state as a party that protects these rights, and most rights are expressed as legal rights, right? So all of those individual elements can be quite problematic when it comes to AI systems because it can affect groups and societies, not per se, individuals. And, you know, states as the enforcer, it might be challenged because more and more private companies are playing like a state-like role. And the fact that most are expressed as legal rights also means that, well, the law could be lagging behind. The law is, you know, Colloquially said as always playing a, a catch up game to, to technology. So it could be problematic from those elements. Whereas the question of ethics, you know, it, it focuses on what is perhaps good for society, also engages political philosophy, for example, on questions of fairness what is fair or unfair? What type of fairness are we thinking about here? Ethics also encourages us to look at our own role when it comes to, to technologies. What should we do in particular instances? How should we engage with these technologies? But also ethics can be useful for companies to guide their thinking around the right thing to do. There's been many sort of yeah, ethical principles, ethical statements, whatever you call it, that has mushroomed since uh, 2015. There's been more than 150, I believe, today. The disadvantages with ethics is that while it is a helpful moral position, moral positions have no enforcement power, obviously. On the one hand, it helps us to think a little bit clearly about the technology that we're putting out there, and it also helps us to maybe make make clear the values that we implicitly put into the design of our technologies. So I think mm. um, it plays different and complementary uh, roles to, to, to human rights. And the, the scholar Alessandro Mantelero has written about this. And yeah, he, he came up with this um, human rights impact assessment tool that focuses not just on, on human rights, but also ethics and so- social impacts. So a more sort of holistic view on uh, assessing the threats to, to AI systems. How can we then prevent a negative
0: impact of AI systems on human rights?
1: Yeah, I think we need to, at the first instance, think carefully about why we're using that particular AI system and whether those goals can actually be meaningfully met by AI systems. So, for example, when it comes to problem definition. So if your goal in the first place is perhaps a little bit problematic, then... Using an algorithm will only serve this problematic end, right? For example, if you want to monitor citizens and decrease uh, social benefit fraud by monitoring citizens and discriminating citizens in, in, in different ways, then that is already problematic. So your problem definition... Has to be. Uh, has to be respectful of human rights in in the first place. So this is not a problem with technology. The technology just makes it a bit easier to to carry out those problematic uh, framing in the first place. And secondly, the the data for what you actually want to measure may not actually exist. Right. So proxies are used, and there could be bias and prejudicial elements lurking within those. Proxies. So, for example, if you want to, yeah, use an algorithm to hire, uh, quote unquote, good employees, then how do you measure? How do you compute good employees? Well, you could say, well, um, okay, um, let's say the employee doesn't turn up late for work, right? Okay, that's uh, fairly, I suppose, fair measurement. But then it could also be biased against certain people that live far away from the city center let's say and they could be from a certain socioeconomic class. It could also be biased against women for example who still have the bulk of duties in relation to childcare. So 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 those things right you you have to think a little bit about not just the data but also the proxies that 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 is being used. Um we can also have in place a human rights impact assessments to assess the impacts of these algorithmic models and tools that is used from the very beginning. So don't wait until problems come up. We get there at the very beginning and do these impact assessments to see, OK, what potential human rights problems could arise here by using this algorithm? Um, and how do we try to, to mitigate that? Uh, one could also have a more diverse workforce uh, if, um, if the people designing the technologies that impact the world are of a certain demographic, of a certain socioeconomic class, um, of a certain political opinion, then that will also be reflected in the technology. It doesn't serve everyone equally. And if you have you know technologies that will be used widely in that way, then it must reflect the experiences of different segments of society. There should also be transparency of how the AI systems work. Um, it might need not be it need not be uh, full transparency because many of us can't understand algorithms anyway, but uh, there should be certain leeway for experts or researchers or whatever to gain access into it. Um, and there should be of course regulation and more policy making in, in the area. Um not informed by sort of these alarmist concerns of robots taking over or whatever, but taking evidence into account and 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 in ways that ensure that uh, human rights are respected in the design of of AI systems so so yeah. yeah,
0: have we come anywhere? are we we there? Are we considering these things? are the teams getting more diverse and are we doing these human rights assessments or
1: yeah, I think you know, some um, employee activism is present in these very big companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter, but certainly it could go much further. And we shouldn't, of course, rely on specific people as, you know, as well-intentioned as they are. We should rely on institutions because these are longer lasting than individual people. But also the EU is, is looking into this as well and looks as if they will be the, the leaders in, in regulating this. Yeah.
0: So the policymakers and legislators.
1: So what are they currently
0: up to when it comes to addressing AI? Yeah, and yeah AI?
1: up to lots of things. <laughs> lots of things. The EU has a very busy legislative schedule these days. So one of the biggest things that, that will be coming out is this piece of legislation called the Digital Services Act that has just received a political approval. So there will be, with this Digital Services Act in, in place, uh, probably two, two years from now or so, there will be due diligence obligations for online intermediaries, different, differentiated obligations based on, on size. So for example, it will cover your hosting provider, like Amazon Web Services, your search engines like Google, and your marketplaces like Airbnb, but also Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, etc., and for very large online platforms or vlops, or vlops, however mm. you want to call it, they will be subjected to the highest degree of due diligence obligations, including monitoring for systemic risks, the risks that they pose to fundamental rights, human rights, as well as to society. So perhaps we remember the the January sixth uh, storming of of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was in the U.S., but it could potentially also happen in the, mm. in the EU. So this legislation would require that these online intermediaries address potential systemic risks. Uh, there's much porting requirements. It will also allow for more algorithmic uh, sort of freedom, so you can choose your news feed to be displayed in more than one way. There will be out-of-court dispute uh, resolution and also trusted flaggers, so experts uh, that will flag problematic content, flag it to the the platform. So that's the Digital Services Act. There's another piece of legislation also coming called the Artificial Intelligence Act, and this deals with, of course, the the threats to artificial intelligence, um, and it's a risk-based form of regulation. So if we think of it like like a triangle, like a pyramid. At the top, there's unacceptable risks. So under no circumstances will these AI systems be allowed in the EU. And these are, for example, social scoring systems. Maybe we can think of, yeah, the most famous one would be the Chinese social credit score, where each citizen has a, has a score. Uh, that's, that will be banned. There's also subliminal manipulation uh, systems that will also be be banned. And also real-time remote uh, biometric, which will also be banned, with certain exceptions for for law enforcement. So that's unacceptable risk at Mm. the top. And then there's the high-risk systems. And for these, the providers have to determine whether it is a high-risk system. So it's a self-assessment system. Uh, and ensure that the design complies with the requirement of the, of the act. So there's lots of things, lots of obligations there for, for them to do. And put a, 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 then once they have done this conformity assessment, they put this CE mark, you know, we might mm. be familiar with the CE mark mm. from, from products, uh, before they can put it into, into market. And high-risk AI systems include systems used for critical infrastructure, employment, law enforcement, public services, including Mm. social benefits, etc. And it's very, very comprehensive, the the requirements there. So there has to be risk management in place, data governance, record keeping, transparency, human oversight, accuracy, robustness, lots of stuff. And it will be painful for Mm. the provider or the online intermediary to not comply with these requirements. It's up to, the penalty is up to 6% of worldwide turnover. So higher than GDPR, which already, uh, I guess, some companies are not happy with. And it it is to send a clear message, right, that these are the lines that we draw in the EU. Certain systems will not be allowed. High-risk systems will be subjected to a lot of requirements mm-hmm. that companies uh, provide.
0: When in time can we... Uh...
1: See, you hope to see these things materialize. I suppose within two to three years we, mm. we, should, we should see something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the landscape will really change yeah. in that period of time.
0: That will be very interesting to see. Mm. To conclude, thank you very much for these super interesting insights. So you are doing research currently on AI and uh, you have a couple of months left, I think. I have a
1: year left. A year left, yeah. yeah.
0: So what is it that you are doing research about
1: my uh, research is on AI and human rights. It takes a sort of meta-theoretical problem-finding perspective. And basically what I look into is looking into how AI is challenging the foundations of human rights. So not per se your discrete human rights like freedom of expression on discrimination and so on, but more the foundations that underlies the theories of human rights and the concepts of, the concept of, of human rights. So, I look into, for example, the conceptual foundation of human rights, looking at how, even though the state is the main protector or addressee of, of uh, human rights obligations, how the state's role is being displaced, and also how the individual is, the individualist framing of human rights is perhaps not the most useful framing when it comes to to AI systems that have these larger harms to to society and to to groups in ways that only perhaps minutely affect uh, individuals, but could affect society at, at large. And here we can think, for example, the Cambridge Analytica situation. Right. Then I also look into the contextual foundations of human rights, which I take to be the social and material existence conditions of human rights, which has since, especially the material conditions, uh, has changed since the human rights regime was sort of you know gained prominence and put into place in hmm. the middle of the twentieth century. And finally, the normative foundations of human rights. So, looking at normative ideas that underpin rights, for example, human dignity, how human dignity being threatened in perhaps new novel ways that did not really pose a problem to the, to the concept before in quite the same way. So I look into whether these foundations still hold. Why is that important? It's important because if these foundations don't hold, then perhaps human rights as a, as a tool to respond to these AI-related challenges is then Sort of blunted and becomes irrelevant. Mm. Um, I don't think I will reach that conclusion that human rights is relevant, but it, it also needs to take into account other aspects. We need to take into account other aspects as well, for example, ethics, what we talked about, mm. Mm. and then design, you know, and, and perhaps ongoing auditing of, of the systems. We can't regulate AI the same way we regulate products, for example. Mm. So there are certain affordances of, of AI systems that make it perhaps more novel and more challenging in ways that we have not quite encountered before. So it's important to take this, this problem-finding perspective and not just reach out to the nearest tool that we have, expecting it to solve the problems, as the nature of the problems might be quite different mm-hmm. from what we've encountered before.
0: Great. Do you, do you have? A, can you give us a sneak peek, or is it too early to share any conclusions?
1: I will have an article out at some point, probably in within a month or so, mm-hmm. um, on the harm typology of human rights and how how that is misaligned with the challenges of, of AI systems. But yeah, I will I will probably be finished with it in in a in a year. So. Let's see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're looking forward to that. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk to you about these interesting conclusions. But thank you so much, sue for coming to the studio here at the RWI. So happy to talk to you.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. Very nice to talk to you, too. Thank you so much.
0: That was Sue-Ann on artificial intelligence. Her research is entitled Human Rights 2.0, a primer for the age of artificial intelligence. She looks into the challenges by AI systems towards the foundations of human rights. So you've been listening to On Human Rights. For more information and the latest updates on Raoul Wallenberg Institute's work, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening.